welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Oncology. In this podcast, gynaecological oncologists Dr. David O'Malley and Dr. Domenica Luruso provide an update on the latest US and European guidelines for the treatment of recurrent or metastatic cervical cancer, including the supporting clinical trial data and their insights into how to select treatments in clinical practice. Ms. Courtney Ahn, a women's health nurse practitioner, summarises the key safety considerations when using immunotherapy and targeted treatments for cervical cancer. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from Merck & Co. Inc. and CGen Inc. and is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. In our first interview, Dr. David O'Malley explores the systemic treatments recommended in the US guidelines. I'm Dr. David O'Malley from The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, where I work at the James Comprehensive Cancer Center, now the third largest cancer center in the world. I am honored to lead the Division of Gynecological Oncology, and I'm a professor within that division and the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. What do NCCN and ASCO guidelines recommend for the first-line treatment of recurrent metastatic cervical cancer? We've recently had an update in the NCCN guidelines based on Keynote 826, which was the addition of pembrolizumab in pdl one positive cervical cancer to the backbone of platinum, either carboplatin or cisplatin plus paclitaxel with or without bevacizumab. It's really important to keep in mind the previous regimen did not have pembro before the 826 and this is based on GOG 240. It is still a preferred regimen is to consider without Pembro if that is not available where you practice. But I really think it's very, very important for us to utilize the best therapies for our patients with advanced metastatic service cancer. There are other regimens which are mentioned in the NCCA guidelines, but clearly platinum with paclitaxel, Bev or Bevacivimab, and Pembro or Pembrolizumab is our preferred regimen. It's important to remember that the ASCO treatment guidelines were updated in 2022 when we first heard about Keynote 826 to utilize Pembrolizumab with the paclitaxel backbone with or without bevacizumab. Another interesting and, and important consideration is should we also use radiation to control that pelvic disease? We don't have data one way or another what's the best option for patients with recurrent metastatic disease if they haven't had prior radiation. But I do remember to, to talk to my patients about using, using radiation, if, but particularly if they're having symptoms. What are the latest clinical trial data that support the guideline-recommended preferred first-line treatments for recurrent metastatic cervical cancer? In this phase three trial, Keynote 826, with the utilization of Pembro to the platinum doublet with a physician and patient choice for bevacizumab, we are now seeing survival for over 24 months. 24 months, over two years of survival with patients with recurrent cervix or metastatic cervical cancer. Hazard ratio in the entire population of 0.63, and those with CPS greater than or equal to one of 
we see modest benefits in the progression-free survivals, but the progression-free survival hazard ratios are very similar, right about 0.6. This is really compared to GOG240, which was our other great addition to both survival and median progression-free survival. Remember that GOG240 was the platinum doublet, actually platinum doublets, plus or minus bevacivimab. And again, where we saw was a hazard ratio, and this time point, 0.7 uh, uh, for overall survival, but 0.67 for, and, and 0.67 for median progression-free survival. Again, jumping from to almost 18 months overall survival with the utilization of bevacivimab. And one of the most interesting aspects of these trials, which I don't think we talk about enough, is that the benefit of pembrolizumab and the benefit of bevacivimab are independently added. For example, in GUG240, our objective response rate went up to 50%, 50% when we added bevacivimab. So it went up about 15%, 10 to 15% compared to our previous data. And when we look at Keynote 826, that, that benefit for objective response rate goes up to 66%, 65 plus or minus. So we have another 15% of patients that are hitting rhesus criteria for objective response rate. Many of our patients are symptomatic and getting that additional added benefit of both bevacivimab and Pembro are essential for improving quality of life and relieving symptoms. What do NCCN guidelines recommend for the preferred second-line treatment of recurrent metastatic cervical cancer? My hope is that everybody would receive a checkpoint inhibitor in the first-line setting. But if they did not receive checkpoint in the first-line setting, pembrolizumab is still indicated within at least the United States, but available throughout the world, particularly for those with pdl one positive tumors. Semiplumab, another PD-1 inhibitor, is available in many countries throughout the world in that biomarker non-select population, but is not approved in the U.S., so that would be off-label. Semiplumab is approved in skin cancers uh, and something to uh, consider. One of the most exciting new agents to come available to us for our patients with cervix cancer, really maybe the most exciting after immune therapy, is tezotinib-vidotin. And it's tough for me to say tezotinib-vidotin, so a lot of times I refer to TV as we discuss. We have other regimens. We've talked about BEV. We've talked about taxanes. Um, and we have some others, but really using those best therapies in those first two lines, really important to look at the data. Another opportunity is to make sure we're identifying patients with certain mutations. And you see here, useful in certain circumstances. So we talked about pdl one testing, but also HER2 testing. IHC4 HER2, right now the NCCN guidelines listed as 2 and 3 plus positive using the gastric uh, grading. And we have the opportunity for trastuzumab, deruxetan, or TDXD in those patients with the NCCA guidelines. We also, as part of this additional testing, are always looking for RET gene and NTREC gene fusions. 
I've seen one in my career, but I'm always looking for more. What are the latest clinical trial data that support the guideline-recommended second-line treatments for recurrent metastatic cervical cancer? Oh, really led to the first approval in the United States with regards to pembrolizumab in patients with cervix cancer, pdl one positive cervix cancer, was Keynote 158. Another important consideration is that we make sure that we're testing for DMMR or MSI high, particularly adenocarcinomas. We look at the group of patients with those with MSI high or DMMR. Uh, you know, we, when we look at Keynote 158, the overall response rate of the entire population was 30% for those with DMMR. However, in the patients with pd one positive tumors, which had cervix cancer, the response rate was right about 15%. So again, if not utilized in the first, first line, it is an option in the second line or in those with uh, DMMR-deficient tumors. Now, what else do we have? Well, TV, or tezotimab vidotin. This is probably one of the more exciting results. We now have a randomized phase three trial, which shows improved progression-free and overall survival benefit of TV versus physician and patient choice chemotherapy in the second and third line setting for patients with current metastatic cervix cancer. Again, seeing statistically and clinically significant improvement in overall and median progression-free survivals. This was based on earlier trial, Innovate 204, the previous trial I was referring to is referred, we referred as 301 which we saw objective response was about 24% with sustained duration response over over eight months. That actually led to accelerated approval in the U.S. As we look at other options, again, very interesting, Semipilmab, another PD-1 inhibitor, had a positive phase three trial in power. Semipilmab looks to be available throughout the Western world, while not available in the U.S. on label, as probably had to do with the lack of pdl one testing in this uh, trial. But once again, looking at survival advantage in these patients with a hazard ratio of 0.7, semiplomab versus physician choice, again, a modest improvement in our median progression-free survival, but translation to improvement in overall survival. One of the hallmarks of immune therapy across solid tumors. What is your approach to determining the most appropriate guideline-based treatment for each patient? Really, when we look at the best treatments, for me, we are, I'm trying to get immune therapy, bevacivimab, on my plat with my platinum doublet, either cisplatinum or carboplatinum plus paclitaxel. Unless a patient has an absolute contraindication of bevacivimab or is in very high rate of fistula, I'm really trying to use bevacivimab in addition to the platinum doublet and and pembrolizumab. But we have to remember that biomarker testing still will play an important aspect. For one, in the U.S., pdl one 
testing is necessary for the indication for pembrolizumab in the first line. But what is also important biomarkers to remember, particularly adenocarcinomas, make sure we're testing for MMR or MSI, and really maybe both. Now, I believe we should be sending somatic testing, comprehensive molecular profiling on all our patients recurrent metastatic because we will find actionable mutations. NTRAC and RET gene fusion testing is available with most panels and they will report, though very rare. But another important aspect that we need to now consider, and this was out of the NCCN guidelines, is HER2 testing. Remembering that this is not a next-generation sequencing, but an IHC test. And the current data, we should be using gastric testing, considering two or three plus is positive. Though you could argue any positivity shows activity with TDXD. Now, how are these other findings just reported? For example, A18, which looked at local regional metastatic disease, chemoradiation plus or minus pembro. Well, this trial is positive, meaning that we're going to be utilizing pembro earlier in therapy before the recurrent metastatic, and how will that impact our decisions? Yet to be decided, there's clearly no data to show what patients should we be using IO after IO? Should we be using IO after IO? Thank you for those interesting insights, Dr. O'Malley. Now let's hear from Dr. LaRusso, who shares insights from the European guidelines. Hello, good morning. I'm Keta LaRusso. I'm a GYM oncologist working at Fondazione Policlinico Gemelli of Rome in Italy. What do the current European guidelines recommend for the treatment of recurrent metastatic cervical cancer? Basically, carboplatin pactitaxel plus or minus bevacizumab is the standard treatment for advanced or recurrent chemo-naive cervical cancer. Um, very recently in Europe, according to the ESGO ESROESP guidelines, we had the approval also of pembrolizumab, but only for CPS score positive patient. And when patient recur, basically in immune naive patient, we receive the approval of semiplimab, anti-PD-1 inhibitor semiplimab for immune naive patient. For immune pretreated patient, we have only chemotherapy. The HESMO guidelines that were published earlier in 2017 suggest the platinum pactitaxel bevacizumab in the first line setting of advanced or recurrent disease, but do not provide specific indication at the time of recurrence. For sure, the guidelines were published before the data, the new data we have with immunotherapy and cervical cancer, so needs to be updated. What are the latest clinical trial data that support the European guidelines? Um, the Keynote 826 trial evaluated for the first time the rule of anti-PD-1 inhibitor uh, pembrolizumab in combination with platinum pactitaxel chemotherapy 
plus or minus bevacizumab at physician discretion in patients with advanced or recurrent cervical cancer. The trial was a randomized phase three trial with a double primary endpoint, progression-free and overall survival, and reported the clinically relevant and statistically significant benefit for both progression-free and overall survival in this advanced setting of disease. The trial has PDL1 as a stratification factor, and according to the forest plot, even though PDL1 negative patients represented less than 10% of patients, but unfortunately, the authorities consider that this patient did not gain benefit from pembrolizumab. And because of this, the drug has been approved only for PDL1 positive patients evaluated according to the CPS score more than one. But this is a new standard and a new reality because the addition of PEMBRO increases median overall survival to 24 months, while only chemo provide 12 months of median overall survival and chemo plus BEV provide 17 median overall survival. So a great step, a great improvement for our advanced patient. The GOG240 trial had reported that the addition of BEV to platinum paglitaxel chemotherapy in patients with advanced or recurrent cervical cancer provides a statistically significant and clinically meaningful increase in median overall survival. And this represented the new standard of care, has been represented the new standard of care for more than 10 years. The problem with bevacizumab is that it is a clinically contraindicated indicated in patients with bowel or um, bladder infiltration because of the risk of fistula. The trial reported up to 8 to 12% risk of fistulas in this patient. And this is the reason why we have to select the patient that can gain benefit from bevacizumab. And it has been calculated that the 30 to 40% of our cervical cancer patients cannot receive bevacizumab because of clinical contraindication. For patients who has not received immunotherapy in combination with chemotherapy in the first-line setting, the Empower Cervical 1 trial compared anti-PD-1 inhibitor semiplimab versus physician choice chemotherapy in a later line of therapy. These patients have received up to two prior line of therapy. The trial has overall survival as primary endpoint, and the trial met its primary endpoint. And it's significant increase in overall survival was reported in immune-naive patients treated with semiplimab. And very interesting, the benefit of the drug was reported regardless the expression of PDL1. So the drug has been approved in Europe for all immunonaive, advanced or recurrent cervical cancer patients who have failed prior platinum regardless PDL1 expression. What is your approach to determining the most appropriate guideline-based treatment for each patient? Basically, I think that immunotherapy is changing the natural history of cervical cancer. I tend to use immunotherapy in uh, as early as possible in the treatment algorithm of uh, my patient. So I, if patient is a CPS score positive, 
I always combine immunotherapy plus chemotherapy plus BEV in patients who have not BEV contraindications. So in the first line advanced or recurrent setting, I use pembrolizumab in combination with the chemotherapy and bevacizumab. In this moment, the only biomarker we have in cervical cancer is PDL1, which is reported to be predictive of the response to pembrolizumab. So for PDL1 positive patient, I have no doubt to use immunotherapy in combination with chemo pembro in the first line setting. For PDL1 negative, I need to wait second or third line in order to offer the possibility of semiplimab. I expect that in the future, more and more biomarker will be tested um, because of the possibility to prescribe drug in this patient. In Europe, unfortunately, we cannot prescribe immunotherapy in cervical cancer according to the MSI high, but we know that uh, some cervical cancer tumor present this biomarker and or TMB high. And the, these two biomarkers are well-recognized biomarker of immunotherapy efficacy, but unfortunately, right now, we cannot prescribe immunotherapy according to these two biomarkers. We have the agnostic um, in, authorization of entractinib, which is a drug direct toward NTRK gene fusion. So potentially, this is an opportunity for that rare cervical cancer patient that present this fusion. And we saw very recently the data of pandestiny trial with the trastuzumab derustecani in R2 plus plus patient that was a basket trial with seven cohort. And one of these cohort was also cervical cancer patient in which a 60% overall response rate was reported in R2 three plus patient treated with the trastuzumab derustecan. Of note, this patient have received a median of two prior line of therapy. So 60% overall response rate is really impressive. Hopefully, we will have the possibility, hopefully soon, to use this drug for R2 amplificated cervical cancer patients. Very recently, we saw the results of Kinote 18 evaluating immunotherapy in combination with chemoradiation in a potentially curative setting. I mean, in the setting of locally advanced high-risk cervical cancer who are treated with chemoradiation. And the trial reported a clinically significant and statistically significant reduction of 30% in the risk of progression in patients treated with chemoradiation in combination with immunotherapy. And this is a potentially curative setting. So this patient can be potentially cured. So in my opinion, immunotherapy will move will move in combination with chemoradiation in locally advanced disease. And this means that we will have more and more patients pretreated with immunotherapy. So we need new drugs for treating immune pretreated and immune resistant patients. 
And very recently, uh, we saw the results of the first antibody drug conjugate that potentially will be approved also in Europe in cervical cancer. Antibody drug conjugate are, in my opinion, one of the most interesting class of agent and uh, We saw the results of NGOT 6-12 trial comparing tisotumab versus physician choice chemotherapy in advanced or recurrent cervical cancer who have received up to two prior line of therapy. And the trial reported a significant increase in overall survival for tisotumab versus chemotherapy. And in the registrative trial, we have 30% of patients who have prior receive immunotherapy and this population will increase over time. So antibody drug conjugate will will have a definitive role in immune pretreated patient. Thank you, Dr. Lorusso, for the European perspective. Now let's consider some of the key safety aspects of using immunotherapy and targeted therapy in clinical practice with Ms. Ahn. My name is Courtney Arn, and I'm a women's health nurse practitioner who works at The Ohio State University. What are the key safety considerations with immunotherapies for the treatment of recurrent metastatic cervical cancer? Due to its mechanism of action, immunotherapy is associated with a spectrum of side effects that are much different than other systemic therapies, such as other cytotoxic chemotherapies. Immune-associated AEs can involve any organ or system of the body, with the following being the most prominent, gastrointestinal, dermatologic, hepatic, endocrine, and pulmonary. Simiplumab and pembrolizumab contain special warnings and precautions for use of various immune-related conditions, including pneumonitis, colitis, endocrinopathies, nephritis, hepatitis, and cutaneous reactions. How should patients receiving immunotherapy be monitored for possible side effects? When you're treating someone with immunotherapy, you first want to educate them on the most common AEs that are reported and make sure that they're aware of when to be calling. You also want to make sure that you're checking baseline labs, including a CBC, CMP, and TSH and T4 prior to initiating therapy with immunotherapy, and then also prior to each treatment. Because immunotherapy can cause pneumonitis, you want to be closely monitoring for any respiratory symptoms indicative of pneumonitis, which generally include dyspnea, persistent cough, chest pain, fever, and hypoxia. Sometimes patients can have pneumonitis and they don't have any symptoms, so you also want to make sure that you're closely monitoring their vital signs at each visit and listening to their lungs. If pneumonitis is suspected, then you want to order a CT scan of their chest to assess for pneumonitis. Sometimes you can refer to a pulmonologist or to a bronchoscopy to confirm diagnosis. Colitis is another common AE associated with immunotherapy that you should be monitoring for. Most commonly, patients with colitis will have diarrhea where they have an increase in frequency of their bowel movements. Sometimes patients don't necessarily have more frequent bowel movements, but they have a change in their consistency, so they can have watery stool or even blood in their stool. And sometimes patients will just have abdominal cramping or pain with defecation. So you want to make sure that you're closely monitoring for any changes in their bowel habits or GI symptoms when treating patients with immunotherapy. You also want to rule out any other infectious cause or disease progression when there's been a change in bowel habits as well. Another common AE to be monitoring for is nephritis. Most of the time, these patients don't have any symptoms and it's detected on lab work, most specifically an increase in their serum creatinine. 
So you want to check baseline labs and then prior to each treatment. And if you have noticed an increase in their serum creatinine, then you want to work them up for immune-associated nephritis. Because hepatitis is a common AE associated with immunotherapy, you want to check baseline labs and then closely monitor their liver function test prior to each treatment. If you notice that a patient has a grade one or a grade two increase in their LFTs, most, spe most specifically it will be an increase in their ALT or AST, then you want to monitor their LFTs more closely and check their LFTs every once a week. If they have a grade three or grade four elevation in their liver function test, then you want to monitor their LFTs every one to two days. Cutaneous reactions can also occur, occur when treating patients with immunotherapy, so you want to monitor them for any new rash or itching. Most commonly, it'll be like a red raised rash accompanied with itching. Endocrinopathies can also occur when treating patients with immunotherapy. This can be a little bit more challenging to identify, but you want to keep in mind if a patient is having more fatigue or if you notice any other lab abnormal abnormalities, most commonly it'll be with their chemistry panel or uh, abnormality and their thyroid function. Keep in mind different endocrinopathies that can occur. What management strategies can be used if side effects occur with immunotherapy treatment? In general, if a patient has a grade one immune-associated immune toxicity, you should closely monitor for any worsening symptoms, except for if they have a neurological, hematologic, or cardiac toxicity. But aside from those, if there's a grade one immune-associated AE, then you closely monitor for any worsening symptoms. And you can also do symptomatic management. So if they have a rash, you can do a topical steroid, or if they're having diarrhea, you can use antidiarrheals. If they have a grade two immune-associated AE, then you should consider holding immunotherapy and consider using corticosteroids until it improves to a grade one or back to their baseline. If a patient experiences a grade three immune-associated AE, then you should hold immunotherapy and initiate high-dose corticosteroids, which would be prednisone one to two milligrams per kilogram per day or equivalent. Once their AE improves to a grade one or back to their baseline, then you begin to taper the corticosteroid over four to six weeks. After they finish their steroid taper and their AE has remained grade one or back to their baseline, you can restart the immunotherapy depending on the severity of their AE. If a patient has a grade four immune-associated AE, you should permanently discontinue immunotherapy. What are the key safety considerations with the antibody drug conjugate tisotumab vidotin for the treatment of recurrent metastatic cervical cancer? Tisotumab vidotin is an antibody drug conjugate that consists of three components. So first you have the monoclonal antibody that binds to tissue factor. Tissue factor is a protein that's expressed in cervical cancer or other solid tumors. So you have the monoclonal antibody that binds to the tissue factor and then it is linked to MMAE, which is a microtubule disrupting agent. So kind of like the cytotoxic component of it. So you have the monoclonal antibody, the linker, and then the MMAE. Once the monoclonal antibody is linked to the MMAE, the MMAE releases within the cell wall, causing cell death. The most common AEs associated with tizodomab vidotin include lab abnormalities, fatigue, nausea, peripheral neuropathy, alopecia, epistaxis, conjunctival adverse reactions, hemorrhage, dry eye, diarrhea, and rash. There are AEs of special interest, which include ocular toxicity, 
the most common being conjunctival and corneal AEs, dry eye, and blepharitis. And then other special interest AEs include bleeding events, which are the hemorrhagic events, the most common being epistaxis, vaginal bleeding, and hematuria. Other AEs include pneumonitis and peripheral neuropathy. How should patients receiving tisotumab vidotin be monitored for possible side effects? Because tisotumab vidotin can cause ocular toxicities, you need to refer to an eye care provider prior to initiating therapy with tisotumab vidotin. It could be an optometrist or an ophthalmologist, but they need to have a baseline eye exam prior to starting treatment, and the exam needs to include a visual acuity and a slit limb eye exam. They will need to have an exam at baseline prior to every infusion of tizotimab and as clinically indicated. Peripheral neuropathy is another common AE associated with tizotimab Prior to initiating therapy with tizotimab you want to make sure that you're educating patients on the risk of having new or worsening peripheral neuropathy. You also want to make sure you're assessing your patients. If they do have a baseline peripheral neuropathy from a pre-existing treatment, you want to make sure that you're maximizing the treatment for their peripheral neuropathy prior to starting treatment with tizotimab vidotin. Hemorrhage can also occur when treating patients with tizotimab vidotin, so you want to make sure that you're assessing your patients for any increased bleeding risk and also reviewing bleeding precautions with your patient so they know when to call or present to the emergency room. And then lastly, pneumonitis can also occur when treating with tizotimab vidotin, so you want to make sure that you're monitoring for any respiratory symptoms indicative of pneumonitis and giving them strict precautions of when to call. What management strategies can be used if side effects occur with tizotimab vidotin treatment? To reduce the risk of ocular adverse reactions, you want to make sure that they're adhering to the required eye care regimen. So most importantly, you want to make sure that they have their baseline eye exam and their eye exam prior to every treatment with tizotimab vidotin. You also want to make sure that they're using the eye drops appropriately. This will consist of a vasoconstrictor eye drop immediately prior to the infusion with tizotimab vidotin. They will also be using a corticosteroid eye drop prior to each infusion and then for 72 hours after the infusion. And they'll be prescribed a topical lubricating eye drop that they can use as needed throughout their treatment and for 30 days after their last dose of tizotimab vidotin. You want to make sure that they're using the lubricating eye drops as much as possible to help reduce the risk of ocular adverse reactions. And then also you want to make sure that they're using cooling eye pads during the infusion and for 20 minutes after the infusion to reduce the risk of ocular adverse reactions. The management of ocular adverse reactions, again, you want to make sure that you hold, dose reduce, or permanently discontinue depending on the severity of the ocular adverse reactions, and make sure that you're referring to an eye care provider as soon as they call and report any new or worsening ocular symptoms. If a patient develops new or worsening peripheral neuropathy, you want to hold tizotimab until it improves to grade 1 or back to their baseline. And in the meantime, you also want to make sure that you're maximizing the management with pharmacologic agents or even referring to a physical therapist. You also want to make sure that you're dose reducing or permanently discontinuing depending on the severity of their peripheral neuropathy. Treatment should be permanently discontinued for patients who experience any grade pulmonary or CNS hemorrhage or if they have a second occurrence of a grade 3 hemorrhage in any location or if they experience a grade 4 hemorrhage in any location. For grade 2 or first occurrence of grade 3 hemorrhage, you should hold tizotimab until it resolves and then restart tizotimab at the same dose level. 
Management of pneumonitis includes holding therapy for patients who develop persistent or recurrent grade two pneumonitis and consider dose reducing depending on the severity. You should permanently discontinue tizodomab vidotin if a patient experiences grade three or grade four pneumonitis. Thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access more content on this and related topics on Touch Oncology at www.touchoncology.com. 